I don't remember how long ago it was, um, but I remember hearing R.C. Sproul uh, talk about one of his biggest pet peeves. Um, and he was talking about the way in which pastors and evangelists in particular uh, make false promises to people trying to convince them to become Christians. And so they mean well, right, because they want, they want people to understand that it's better to be a Christian than a non-Christian, right? Which is true. Um, but in their zeal and trying to help people see that truth, they'll sometimes make false claims. And one of those false claims that was R.C. Sproul's pet peeve, and, and mine as well, is all of your problems will be solved if you become a Christian. And uh, R.C. Sproul responded by saying something that I've said repeatedly over the years. He said, actually, most of my problems and struggles came after I became a Christian. And I've experienced the same thing in my own life. Um, I, know, I don't know how many of you know I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. I, uh, my parents became Christians when I was nine, so I kind of did, but kind of didn't. Um, I was ten when I became a Christian. Um, but what I tell people is, is, after I became a Christian, that's when I had most of my problems and made most of my mistakes. Um, it was very shortly after I became a Christian um, that I made a bunch of bad decisions, um, which caused a ton of problems, issues in my life. Um, after I became a Christian, I all of a sudden found out that all of these things that I was doing that were not that bad, I realized they were actually bad. <laughs> They're sinful. They're dishonoring God. They were destroying my life, and I had to stop doing them, and that caused problems and difficulties and trials. Uh, before I was a Christian, I didn't really care that much if I messed up. It wasn't that big of a deal. After you become a Christian, you realize it is a big deal. Right? Sin is what brought Jesus to the cross. And so uh, when we mess up and fail, we have comfort and hope in Christ, but we also realize how much we have messed up. Um, into ministry, that causes problems. <laughs> nobody, nobody expected me to be in ministry. But, and, you know, cost before you decide to follow me. Because when you decide to follow Jesus, you're going to take on a whole new set of problems. And uh, especially today, making a decision to follow Christ means you're deciding to follow someone and live a life where your values are definitely going to fly in the face of many of the values around us. And you're going to be choosing to live a life where you will be yelled at, mocked, canceled, whatever you want to call it, for holding certain values. Um, when you decide to follow Christ, you become a child of God, which is this really beautiful thing. But becoming a child of God also means that God will discipline you. Right? Scripture tells us, actually, if God doesn't discipline us, then he's treating us as an illegitimate child. And so becoming a child of God means... He's going to discipline you, and discipline hurts, and it's painful, and it feels like a problem. Uh, when you decide to follow Christ, you're going to find out that some of your favorite things are not good things, and things that are actually destroying you, and you're going to have to learn how to give up some of your favorite things, and that feels like a problem. It hurts. Uh, 
Becoming a follower of Christ means he's, he said, I'm going to train you, I'm going to equip you, I'm going to show you how to live in the world, I'm going I'm to shape you into my image. Uh, but guess how he often shapes us into his image? Through trials and difficulties, problems, hardships. And it raises the question, okay, well, if, if becoming a Christian causes all of these problems, why would anybody want to follow him? Doesn't sound that great. We'll answer that eventually. And the second question is, okay, for those of us who've decided to follow Jesus and we're in the midst of all of these problems and struggles, how are we to respond? How does, how does he teach us to, to respond in those moments? We're going to answer both of those this morning. And, you know, one of the things that, that's happening in our morning's passage um, should probably jump out at us. Uh, but we often overlook it. I did for many years, um, reading the Gospel of John. But, but as I've studied it more and more, I've realized that John wrote this passage to have one part of it kind of jump out like a big flashing beacon to us. Because one of the phrases that you've probably heard me emphasize as we've been going through the last 11 chapters is this phrase we've heard over and over and over again. Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. And, or John just writing, saying, well, Jesus went and did this because it was not yet his hour. It hadn't come. The hour hasn't come. And yet, in this morning's passage, we hear Jesus say, the hour has come. It's here. It hasn't been here. You've been waiting for it. But now, it's here. Um, and, and it's kind of gets us going, okay, why? How does he know now is the hour? How, what does that mean? What, what is the hour? What does that look like? What, what changed? Um, and, and one of the things that, that John does as he's uh, kind of writing this part of the story is he's helping us understand what has changed so that Jesus knows the hour has come, and then Jesus eventually begins to describe what that hour is for his life. And, and the way that John does it is in John's typical way of using irony. Because um, I don't know if you remember how last week's passage ended, right? Last week was the triumphal entry. Jesus coming into Jerusalem, and there were people excited and praising him. But there were also the Pharisees off on the side, kind of despairing at what was happening, right? And they say, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world's gone after him. And of course, they were despairing, and they were just exaggerating. They were just seeing this large group of people coming to Jesus, and they say, ah, the world's coming after him. And then the very next verse, John says, actually, they're saying more than they knew when they say the world's going after him. He says, well, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who were from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we want to see Jesus. And so what John's pointing out is the Pharisees are going, ah, oh, the world's going after him. And John's saying, actually, the world is coming after him. There, there's Greeks coming to the Passover to see Jesus. It's, it's the world. It's not just the Jewish people, but there's other people who have traveled a long ways away who've heard about Jesus and they're coming here to see Jesus. The world is actually coming to Jesus. Um, now, John calls them Greeks. They're probably proselyte Jews. That's why they're coming to worship. 
So that means they're, they're not Jewish people, they're Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, which is why they're coming to worship. But it's this idea that they're coming from a long ways away. They've heard about Jesus. They want to see him. And, and when they come to Jesus' disciples and the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, there's some Greeks looking for you. Jesus' response is, the hour has come. The, the fact that the world was coming to him was for him this sign that, uh, as what he had said a couple chapters ago, that these sheep of mine that are not from this sheepfold, the sheep who are outside the sheepfold are coming in, it's a sign that the hour has come. And so what does he do? Now that Jesus knows the hour has come, now he begins to explain to the disciples, okay, what does this hour look like? What, what does it mean? Um, how should they understand the, the hour? So he kind of gives the disciples a parable. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You can kind of hear, think the, imagine the disciples' ears perking up going, ah, he's going to be glorified, even more so than the triumphal entry. And Jesus goes, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And what he's doing is giving them this parable to help them understand that the hour that's coming, the hour that's going to bring Jesus glory, is going to be his death. And he wants them to understand with this parable, he reminds them that when you go out and you sow seed, that that seed, in order for it to do something, gets buried in the ground and it dies. That's the purpose of it. It's the point of the seed. And when that seed dies, it's not pointless, it's not worthless, it's not meaningless, but it actually has to die in order for the fruit to come. If it doesn't die, there's no fruit. And what he's doing is he's kind of laying the groundwork for his disciples because he knows he's going to die soon. And that when he dies and when he's buried in the ground, the disciples are going to think they just experienced the worst defeat of their life. And they're probably going to think all of their hopes and their dreams are gone. They're going to probably think all of their work and all of Jesus' work and all of his miracles, all of his teaching is all pointless. It's all buried in the ground with him, worthless. And so Jesus is teaching them not every death is a defeat. Some deaths, like a seed, like Jesus' death, actually bear fruit. And not just a little fruit. He says it bears much fruit. Uh, and what he's pointing out to them is not just that he's going to die and that some good is going to come out of his death. He's saying, no, I have to die. It's the only way that this fruit will come. I have to die. And by dying, my death will bear much fruit. And he gives a couple examples throughout the passage of what fruit comes out of his death. If you look at verses 32 through 33, he says, And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so, we're told, right, John helps us understand what Jesus is saying. He says, when I'm lifted up from the earth, John says, when he's saying that, he's talking about 
how he was going to die, being lifted up from the earth on the cross. And there's a lot of figurative language going on here because being lifted up is actually the same word. Well, it's not the same word, but hallowed be your name means to lift up God's name, to be glorified. So Jesus says, when I'm lifted up from the earth on the cross, when I'm glorified on the cross, when I die, the fruit that's going to come from that is that all people, I will draw all people to myself. Now, it's one of those passages that's important to recognize because some will read that and think, okay, well, he must be saying that like all living people then will, will come to him and believe in him. He's going to draw them all to himself from the cross. But we know that's not true because we've just listened to chapter after chapter after chapter where Jesus said, some sheep are mine and some sheep are not mine. Those who believe in me will, will enter into the sheepfold. They'll be with me for eternity. Those who don't believe in me will not be part of my sheepfold. It will be in hell for eternity. So we know that it's not that he's drawing everybody to himself, but the way that word all is often used is all types, all kinds. And what he's talking about is the Greeks, the Gentiles, the world. He's saying, it's not just the Jews that are going to be saved and come to me through my death. The world will come to me and be saved through my death. That's a lot of fruit. And uh, just to kind of help us see the fruit that has come from that about 2,000 years later, uh, right now, estimated that one-third of the population of the earth is Christian. 23 3.8 billion people on, on earth are Christian. And uh, I looked this up myself. I had to sit and count them all. But there's 117 countries where over half the population is a professing follower of Jesus Christ. The nations have come to Jesus through his death. Um, that's a lot of fruit. Uh, he says, here's another aspect that comes from his death, more fruit that comes from it. He says, in that hour, in his death, the judgment of the world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And the ruler of the world that he's talking about is, is Satan. And he's saying, through my death, the fruit that's going to come from my death is that Satan and his kingdom will be defeated. Will be overthrown, cast out. Or, as I really like the description in Revelation that John also wrote, it says, from this point on, Satan will be a tamed dragon with a leash locked in a cage. And we know that hasn't happened fully and completely yet, right? We know Satan and demons, they still have power and authority. They, they still have issues. They, they cause problems throughout the earth. And yet, Jesus said, no, my death on the cross will be the death blow to this kingdom. It will be defeated in that moment. It will still be around, but it won't be, it won't be completely defeated, but it will be defeated. The battle is over. And from the point of Jesus' death, Satan's kingdom would continue to fall away and get weaker and weaker and smaller and smaller. And the kingdom of God will continue to come over and over and over and over again. It's powerful fruit. 
And with kind of all of that in mind, then Jesus turns to his disciples and starts to help them understand what this means for them. What does this mean for how they are to go out and live their lives? And he says, whoever loves his life loses it. Uh, Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Another way of saying that could be this. Um, There's a way of living your life that seems like it's going to bear fruit, but it won't. Um, There's a way of living your life that seems to be focused on preserving your life, maintaining your life, but it actually won't preserve anything. Um, Or there's a way to live your life that seems like, okay, this is safe, and comfortable, and it's nice, and yet it's actually dangerous because it will result in you losing your life. And in contrast, Jesus says there's a way in which you can live where you're laying down your life, um, giving everything you have to the point of death. And that life bears fruit. Um, And there's a way to live your life where you're not always kind of pragmatically trying to calculate how to save your life, how to maintain your life, how to preserve your life, but is always looking for opportunities on where you can lay your life down. And he says that life bears fruit. And and as I was thinking through that this week, I was thinking of just some of my own uh, kind of history in, in things I've studied over the years. Uh, you know, I ran a business for a while, and so I've read and studied a, a bunch of business books. And, and one of the things, even a business owner will tell you that this, they see this true in the business world. Um, they would say any business, the moment it gets to the point of trying to focus solely on its safety and preservation, will be the moment that that business begins to die. Um, a coach will tell you this. The Detroit Lions just figured this out. The moment that a team starts playing to protect the win, to protect the lead, taking it safe, trying to preserve, is the moment they actually start to lose the game. It's the same for churches. Churches that focus on preservation and maintaining the moment a church starts to die, right? A church that seeks to save its life will lose it. It's true. A church that becomes too afraid to take risks or, or to kind of do something, step out in faith, is a church that is on the path towards trying to save their life and on the path toward death. And it's the same for each one of us. The moment any human being clicks their brain and their heart into preservation mode, focusing on safety, comfort, is the moment you begin to lose your life. And the reason is, that's not how God created us to live. That's not how he designed it. Um, That's why a business dies and a team loses the moment they switch into preservation mode. Why? Because they stop doing the things that they were created and designed to do. They stop doing the things that got them to the place where they were winning. It's the reason why churches begin to die when they start focusing on preservation and comfort, because they stop doing what God has called them to do and start relying on themselves. They don't function the way God has called us to function, so they die. 
It's the same with our own lives. We were not designed to save our lives. We were designed to lay our lives down as an offering to God. To pour our lives out as an offering to him. And to have constant little deaths along the way. But deaths that continue to bear much fruit. And the moment we stop dying is the moment we stop bearing fruit and the moment we actually lose our life. Um, And that's the answer to the first question. If becoming a Christian causes all of these problems, why would I ever want to believe in Christ? Because every problem that comes is a problem that will bear fruit. And outside of Christ, every problem bears no fruit, just brings destruction. It's why Jesus can say things like this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Because that's going to bring death in your life. It's going to bear fruit. It's hard when people say nasty things about you. It's hard. And it brings a little death in you. But he says you're blessed because of it because it will bear fruit. Or James, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it joy when you find problems. Count it joy when you encounter small deaths. Why? Because they will bear fruit in your life. To the point where he says you will be perfect. You will be complete. You will lack nothing. Right? All of these problems that come into our life through Christ are problems that are designed to make us perfect and holy like Christ. And outside of Christ, they're all meaningless and pointless. But in Christ now, you have this confidence and hope that no problem is pointless anymore. No problem is hopeless or meaningless. They're all there to bear fruit. And that's why we're willing to endure persecution. Or we're willing to lose money and family and friends and lose influence and authority. That's why we're willing to lay down things that we once loved a lot. That's why we're willing to lay down wrongful desires that are going on in our hearts. That's why we're willing to lay down ambitions, hopes, and plans. Or why we're willing to just pour out our lives as an offering to God. Because we know by pouring our lives out and by laying those things down, they will die. And when they die, they will bear much fruit. And that doesn't make it easy. Right? That leads to that second question. How do we respond then in the midst of that? Dying is hard. Uh, even small deaths in our life are, are hard. And so how do we respond to that? Well, Jesus shows us a way here. Because he's, he's talking about his death that's coming. Um, him having to lay down his life. And he says this. Now is my soul troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? 
But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This may seem like kind of a, a trite, simple answer, but, but how do you respond in the midst of having to lay down your life or lay down difficulties and trials and struggles? You pray. And you pray again and again and again and again. That's what Jesus is doing, right? He's saying, I know I'm going to die, and my soul is troubled. It's heavy. I know what's about to happen. I know how hard this is going to be, how difficult this is going to be. Uh, He's going to bear the wrath of God. And so he says, my soul's troubled, but, but what should I say? Father, save me? No. This is why I came. The Father sent me for this very reason. Should I say, no, I shouldn't say, save me. He doesn't say, save me from this difficulty, make it easy for me, take away the pain and difficulty. No, he says instead, Father, glorify your name. And and there's two things he's doing here. On the one hand, we see him submitting, right? Submitting to the Father, saying, this is going to be hard, but I know this is your plan. I know this is your purpose for me. I know you're in control of this, and so I submit to it. I'm not going to ask to get out of it. I'm going to submit to it. And then the second thing he's doing is saying, now that I'm submitting to it, it's not about me. It's about you. And so, Father, may you be glorified through this. And to bring this all the way back to the beginning, he's praying what? Your will be done. And hallowed be your name. Two things we're called to pray. How often? At least every day. And probably more than that. And when Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, the Father says, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. So how do we respond? How do we respond when faced with difficulties, trials? How do we respond when we have to lay down ambitions, hopes, plans, desires, things we love? We come to God and we pray over and over and we say, Your will be done. Hallowed be your name. And we don't always come. There is a time and a place to say, Father, save me. But that's the beginning of the prayer. The Father, save me has to lead to the point of saying, even if you don't, your will be done. And so you come to him and you say, this is is so hard. I... I, (laughs) Uh, this is one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do. I have no idea how I'm going to make it through this. I, can't, I don't know if I can. It feels like I'm going to die. But I know you're in control. I know you're in control of this moment right here. And so I want to say, save me. And if you save me, that's, that's great. But I'm going to say, your will be done. If you save me or if you don't save me, I know it will be good. And so, I'm going to say, your will be done in this moment. And more so than just your will be done, may you be glorified in and through this trial. Because I know that this death will bear much fruit. 
And the Father will say, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It's one of the most beautiful, powerful parts of the Christian life. Uh, Yes, the Christian life is going to introduce a bunch of new problems in your life. It's true. Um, But it also brings with that confidence and hope and strength and peace that every one of those problems will bear fruit. Because apart from Christ, you have no hope and confidence that any of the problems that you're enduring or going through will bring any hope or peace. Um, Apart from Christ, where do you turn when encountered with a difficulty that's beyond your strength and ability? You have nowhere. But in Christ, we have this hope that every trial, every difficulty will bear fruit. And when we look to Christ in faith, we're reminded that not only every one of our difficulties and trials will bear fruit, when we look to Christ in faith, we know his death will bear fruit in our lives, right? His death, through faith, will cleanse us, will forgive us, will wash us pure, and will begin to transform us and shape us to become more and more like him. It will bear that fruit in your life without a shadow of a doubt. You don't have to question it. And then along with that fruit comes hope and peace and strength to continue to endure any trial or difficulty that comes our way. And then as we live into that and as we live in Christ and and keep laying down our lives before him, we begin to see that we were created not to save our lives, but we were created to lay down our lives as an offering to God daily. Let's come to him in prayer. Father, we come into your presence thankful again that you're our God, thankful for the hope, the peace, the strength that you give us, thankful for the beautiful promises you've placed over us, that one, as your people, you will never leave us nor forsake us, and that two, all things work together for our good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Every difficulty in our life will bear fruit because of you and your faithfulness in our lives. And Father, we come to you and confess that we don't often live that way. We often try to take matters into our own hands. We often act as if every problem is, is a punishment or is pointless or is meaningless in our lives. We often lose hope, don't rely on you, don't come to you in prayer. And so, Father, we ask your forgiveness. And we ask your cleansing, your restoration. And not only that, Father, but we ask that your spirit would work in us and move in us in a powerful way. That not only would we be cleansed and forgiven and strengthened to endure the, the difficulties in front of us, but, but that, we would, that your spirit would work in us to turn our eyes and hearts to you regularly. To recognize that we are helpless and that you truly are powerful and strong. And so may we turn to you repeatedly in prayer. And may you meet us there and give us the strength to lay down our lives and then use that to bear fruit in our lives, but also beyond us in the world. And Father, we pray that your name would be hallowed and we pray that your kingdom would come.
and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.